everybody. I am Pastor Berg. I am filling in for Pastor Mark Grace. Today is uh, Trinity 14. The gospel lesson is the 10 lepers, and then the one returns in faith in his. Uh, so uh, be listening for that. Um, one announcement too, if you, uh, if you have communed here before, uh, you are welcome to commune here. Uh, if you haven't communed here before, uh, please wait to commune until you can talk to Pastor Proyerson. So, uh, thank you very much. And we will continue with our first hymn. God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, 
confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray for your promised mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being.
fall. Keep us ever by thy help from all things sinful, and lead us to all things profitable for our salvation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, God, now and forever. Bye. 
grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. But where are the nine? Our Lord's question smacks us in the face because it's our own question. Ten children are baptized. Only one remains in the pews. Where are the nine? Ten children are confirmed and make vows before God and the congregation that they will attend church regularly and stand fast in the faith, even unto death, but only one remains a Lutheran into adulthood. Where are the nine? Where are our brothers and sisters? Where are our children and grandchildren? Where are the nine? Has the church failed? Has the church lost the power and authority to cleanse these children of the leprosy of their sin in holy baptism? Has the church neglected to teach these little lambs the catechism, the Bible histories, and other poignant points of Christian doctrine in parochial schools, in Sunday school, in catechism class, or in Bible study? Have we, the church, traded the power to heal the spiritually crippled for, for silver and gold, for prestige and glory, for earthly comfort, and for worldliness? Are the nine gone because of us? Now we know that we are sinners, and that we have knowingly or unknowingly caused people to stumble. But despite that, the church is still Jesus' church. He is the one who baptizes. He is the one who brings spiritual healing. He is the one who seeks out and saves the lost. It is his word which grows, not ours. He grows his church, not us. Even when we fail and fall short, Jesus is faithful. But today, in our gospel lesson we see that nine walk away from the perfect preacher. Jesus healed them. He answered their prayer for healing. And these nine still walked away. They didn't return to give glory to the Son of God who loved them and healed them. They had faith when they needed something, but after that need was taken care of, they fell back into apathetic unbelief. And this bothers us. This bothers us because we think that success is based on numbers. I mean, who doesn't like belonging to a big group? Who wants to be a loner? Who wants to sit in a choir loft with only three other people? Very few of us are lone wolves. And numerical growth in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. But there is something quite wrong with numerical growth if it becomes a matter of fearing, loving, and trusting in something or someone other than God. This love of numbers is not something that we learn from the Bible. Rather, we learn it from the society in which we live, whose attitudes and values we have absorbed like mother's milk. If we go by the world's standards, Jesus is a failure. Only 10% came back. And this should remind us of one crucial fact. As parents, 
can never warrant the faith of their children, no single generation of the church can guarantee the faith of the next generation. You see, it's not faith, but superstition. If we assume that because we have Christian schools, Christian colleges, Christian facilities, parishes, Sunday school, catechism class, confessions, a ministry for the administration of the means of grace, or even this campus ministry, that if we have all of that, that that automatically means that the next generation will be Christian. I mean, isn't this what we learn and we recite in the third article's explanation when we say, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel, enlightens me with his gifts, sanctifies and keeps me in the true faith. It's the Holy Spirit who works faith in the hearts of men. As individuals and as a congregation, we proclaim the truth. We teach the truth in Sunday school. We teach the truth in Bible class. We teach the truth to our neighbors and to our friends. But we cannot create faith. Only the Holy Spirit can and does create faith in the heart. And that's why, along with the explanation of the third article, we must also learn the fifth article of the Augsburg Confession. See, in the article before that one, we learn that faith alone justifies. That means that faith saves. Article 5 teaches us how we receive that faith. That we may obtain this faith the office of teaching the gospel and administrating the sacraments was instituted. For through the word and the sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given who works faith where and when it pleases God. This where and when it pleases God must never, ever be overlooked. Of course, we know that the word of God is never preached in vain. But how many or how few may be brought to real, living faith that is solely found in the freedom of God. The other thing about this text that bothers us is that Jesus seems to be throwing up barriers to saving faith. Society teaches us instant gratification. We all want an easy button, even though we're taught sayings like, there is no substitute for hard work, and without labor, nothing prospers. And even though we are taught these things, other cultural phenomena, like Amazon, Netflix, and other institutions, teach us to take the path of least resistance. We think that we have a need, and so we go online, and we buy it with free two-day shipping. Because we are creatures who are formed by our culture, we try to make the Christian faith easy by dumbing it down and by taking out the hard and the scary bits. I mean, let's be honest. It's virtually impossible to sneak into a service or to escape afterward without being ambushed by 
greeters who are determined to show you just how friendly they can be. We hear it all the time. Meet people where they're at. Make the sermon more relevant to my life. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. I mean, think about it. Go through the Bible. Think of how often Jesus failed to meet the expectations of and the needs of people exactly as they perceived them. No, in the Bible, Jesus addressed real needs. That's what the Bible does too. Jesus showed love, but that's quite a different thing from being nice or friendly. See examples of this throughout Scripture. A rich young man comes running to hear the gospel, but Jesus doesn't greet him in a friendly way, but instead seems to jump down his throat. Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. Think of the disappointment that the disciples had when this rich young man, who might have been a potential chairman of the stewardship committee, walked away because Jesus failed to meet his felt needs or to meet him where he was at. Think of the reading today. Jesus doesn't meet the Samaritan leper where he's at. Jesus' command to show yourself to the priests was a stumbling block to this Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritans were a heterodox church body. They only believed that the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, were God's word, as well as parts of Joshua. And all six of these books were significantly different than what their original Hebrew form was. The Samaritans rejected the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they rejected the histories, like First and Second Kings. According to their significantly different, shortened Bible, the Samaritans thought that they were required to worship on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. I mean, do you see it? The Samaritan had been taught all his life that the Jews were the heretical ones. He had been taught from childhood that the priesthood in Jerusalem was not only corrupt, but that it also worshipped in the wrong place. There was so much hatred and tension between the Jews and the Samaritans that went back generations. And yet... By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Samaritan doesn't even question Jesus' command. He goes. He goes toward Jerusalem. He goes toward those whom he considers corrupt, false priests. He goes toward a denomination which has more scripture than what he grew up with. He doesn't buck. He doesn't question Jesus doesn't make it any easier for him. Jesus doesn't say, okay, you nine Jews, you go show yourself to the priests. You Samaritan, okay, we'll make things easy. You go to Mount Gerizim. No, Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus isn't all that nice or friendly. He still calls the Samaritan a foreigner, which is hardly an inviting and friendly term by our modern standards. We would be gushing over this new convert. But Jesus doesn't. 
Jesus doesn't gush because Jesus knows that the Samaritan's faith was created by the Holy Spirit. Here, we see that true, heaven-born faith conquers all difficulties, steps over all impediments because it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the comfort in this passage. We would expect that the Samaritan would have been the last person to believe in Jesus and to praise God rightly. His ethnicity, his upbringing, and his heterodox belief were all impediments to believing in Jesus and in worshiping God rightly. But the Bible in this passage teaches us that sometimes the finest fleece grows on the scantiest of hills. Saving faith appears in the most unlikely of places because the Holy Spirit works where and when he wills. Where are the nine? Only God knows. But we, what we rejoice over is the one. There are many other kinds of growth than simple numerical growth. One can grow deep as well as wide, vertically as well as horizontally. I mean, really, what's more valuable in the long run? Planting one fruit tree or a thousand mushrooms? We rejoice over the remnant, the one who is in the church. We rejoice that he or she has remained up to the challenge, that they have struggled to understand, and that they have persevered despite every obstacle, despite every difficulty. And these people do this. Remnant does it. You do this. Not by your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. By this heaven-born faith do we overcome. We overcome our ethnicity. We overcome our upbringing. And we overcome our hang-ups. And to such heaven-born faith, Jesus says these beautiful and comforting words. Rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
Let us continue uh, with the prayers of the church. Let us pray for the whole church of God and Christ Jesus and for all people according to their needs. Mighty and merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies, especially for the gift of your dear Son and for the revelation of your will and grace. Implant your word in us that with good and honest hearts we may keep it and bring forth the fruits of faith. We humbly implore you to rule and govern your church throughout the world. Bless all those who proclaim your truth, that we may be preserved in the pure doctrine of your saving word, and that faith in you may be strengthened, love towards others increase, and your kingdom extend. Send forth laborers into your harvest, and sustain those whom you have sent, the word of reconciliation may be proclaimed to all people, and the gospel preached in all the world. Grant health and prosperity to all who are in authority, especially to the President and Congress of the United States, the Governor and Legislature of this state, to all those who make, administer, and judge our laws. Grant them grace to rule according to your good pleasure for the maintenance of righteousness and the hindrance and punishment of wickedness that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. According to your good pleasure, turn in the hearts of our enemies and adversaries that they may cease their hostilities and walk with us in meekness and in peace. Comfort, O God, with your Holy Spirit, all who are in trouble, want, sickness, anguish, labor, peril of death, or any other adversity. Grant courage and steadfastness especially to those who suffer for your name's sake, that they may receive and accept their afflictions in the confidence that you will acknowledge them as your own. Although we have deserved your righteous wrath and punishment, yet we ask you, O most merciful Father, not to remember the sins of our youth, nor our many transgressions. Out of your unspeakable goodness and mercy, defend us from all harm and danger to body and soul. Preserve us from false doctrine, War, bloodshed, plague, and pestilence, mild calamity by fire, water, and hail, and tempest, from failure of heart, and from famine, from anguish of heart, and despair and mercy, and from an evil death. In every time of trouble, show yourself a very present help, the Savior of all, especially to those who believe. Cause all needed fruits of the earth to prosper, that we may enjoy them in due season. Give success to the Christian training of the young, to all lawful occupations on land, sea, and air, to all pure arts and useful knowledge, crowning them with your blessing. O God, our bodies and souls and all our talents, together with the offerings we bring, by his blood your Son has purchased us to be your own, that we may live under him in his kingdom. These and whatsoever other things you would have us ask of you, O God, Grant us for the sake of Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.